Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri. And I'm Claire McCaskill. We're the hosts of the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024. We both know firsthand that winning an election is hard. And having been in and around tough races for most of our adult lives, we have some unique insights into what it will take to win this 2024 election. And some crazy stories to share, too. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you're listening and follow. New episodes every Thursday. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Joyce Vance, Kimberly Atkins-Store, Barb McQuaid, and me, Jill Wine-Banks. Today, while we all regret the chaos in Congress and the devastation of the attack on Israel, we have three great topics for you. The Supreme Court will be weighing in on South Carolina's gerrymandered map. And is it racial or partisan? Tomato, tomato. And there are two superseding indictments for us to discuss, one uh, for Senator Menendez and one for Representative Santos. And that means a Trump-free week. That I'm celebrating. As always, we will look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But before we get started, I wanted to start with talking about what we're doing to divert ourselves from the week's events and news and I personally have taken to reading the first novel I have read in years. I do so much nonfiction reading for what we do here today that I don't have time for novels, but one of my best friends recommended Lessons in Chemistry, and I couldn't put it down. I highly recommend to all of you, my sisters, and to all of you listening, Lessons in Chemistry. It really is a smart, funny, diverting book. Of course, there is a dog as one of the central characters. <laughs> so I know that at least most of you who are dog lovers or cat lovers will love this character for sure. What are you reading, Kim? I actually read that too. I really, oh, did, I really did, did enjoy that. I read that over, that was one of my summer books and I enjoyed it uh, from beginning to end. You know, I have been thinking a lot about history, especially at the beginning of a new Supreme Court term. So I actually have been rereading The Brethren um, about the uh, Supreme Court during the time of uh, the Brennan Court. And it, it has been really uh, enlightening. My, one of my favorite parts of the book is I'm just getting to the point where uh, Justice Brennan was outraged when one of the justice's friends tried to talk to him about a pending case. And he immediately shut down the conversation, threw the friend out of his chambers and said he would recuse himself from any consideration. And it's sort of like, wow, like on the one hand, that's so commonsensical. But on the other hand, it feels like a different world from the ethical standards that the current justices are holding themselves to. And it's actually helpful to me to say, okay, I'm not crazy in the way I'm reacting to the things that are happening now. When you look at history and you look at the way that other justices have treated their jobs, it only underscores what is needed now. So I often turn to history just to understand the present a little better. And right now the brethren's helping me do that. 
was just as Brendan offered a fishing trip, though, with a plane seat that would otherwise have gone unoccupied. <laughs> step, you know, was it after he stepped off the private jet or before? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And so, Barb, what are you reading? <laughs> you know, I just finished a great book that was recommended to me um, by Ann Patchett. And I've read a bunch of her stuff, which I really like. But this one is called Tom Lake. And, and in fact, I don't know if I can say I read it because I listened to it um, on Audible as read by Meryl Streep. And it's unbelievably good. It's about um, a woman who's exactly my age, so that probably helps, um, who is home at her cherry orchard in Tra- near Traverse City, Michigan during COVID. And her three adult daughters have come home uh, to help work on the farm because all the seasonal workers aren't able to come. And they're in college or beyond and have come home to be with her. And during those quiet times of COVID, which I'm sure we all remember, she um, regales them with the story of a young romance of hers. It's an amazing story. And in fact, after reading, quote, I'm putting reading in air quotes, listening to that one, someone else turned me on to another book by Ann Patchett called The Dutch House, as read by Tom Hanks. And that's really good too. So highly recommending both. I have found them to be so enjoyable. I've made a project of cleaning my daughter's room. Don't tell her. Hope she's not listening. Well, she's at college because I can't stand it anymore. But I listen first to, to Tom Lake and now to the Dutch House while I'm doing that. And I can't wait to get in there to do the work because I, it's my time when I get to listen to that as a reward. So highly recommend both. You've convinced me. I'm going to download it. If you're a fiction writer, the key is to get good people to read your audio yeah. audio. Oh, book. so good. They're That's so amazing. Good. I, I'm impressed that you're cleaning your daughter's room. When you yeah, get no, done, was, can you come down here? I, I couldn't stand it anymore. My husband said, did you clean the room? Like, yeah, it was a, a, a test of wills who could stand it the longest. The long, <laughs> I, can't, I can't take it anymore. So what about you, Joyce? Weigh in on what you're reading. You know, so um, like Barb, I do a lot of listening to books on tape, but I confess that I've reached the point that I don't usually reach until after I'm brain dead from grading 70 first-year law school exams. Um, I have already reached the point where I'm watching Lifetime TV this year. And last (laughs) night, I sat there with my knitting. You know, you can knit while you watch Lifetime romance movies. They are so lovely. They are so predictable. Everyone is happy at the end. I watched a great film called Pumpkin Pie War. Um, the couple <laughs> fell in love and lived happily ever after, and um, everything was right in my world for whatever it was—an hour and fifteen minutes. I love Christmas movies. People take them like really seriously too. Like I, um, the, in the past, have occasionally guest hosted on point. Uh, the NPR show, and we did one about Christmas movies, and the listeners were so serious <laughs> about them. Like, the, I was trying to crack some jokes and be kind of, you know, flipping about. No, sir, people were not having it. Like, they are so serious about their Christmas and holiday movies. It's it's that time of year, and and. People Friday is the is the kickoff. Next Friday is the kickoff for um, the new uh, season of Lifetime Christmas movies. And believe me, I have advised my husband we will be staying home Friday night. It's good. I think everyone understands this, and that there's no one who hasn't, in some time in their life, binge watched something that is not their normal fare. I personally, in this recent time, have been binge watching Heartland about a ranch in Canada. And it's, unfortunately, this last, I, I think I'm on season nine now, <laughs> and there was a, a a death that made me very sad. 
So I can't wait till the next episode to cheer me up again. It's wonderful. And I hope all our listeners will take comfort in our recommendations for this week. I'd love to hear what our listeners are reading and watching, too. I'm always looking for something new and good. So please tweet them at us. Or increasingly, we are finding ourselves on threads. So if you will put them there, that would be great, too. Would love that. And I'm already going to get Ann Patchett's books. So thank you very much for that recommendation. Hope you all found something great. This week, the Department of Justice filed additional charges against U.S. Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey. He was, of course, already under indictment for allegedly accepting bribes, and now additional charges have been filed. Joyce, what are these new charges? Yeah, so this is something we haven't seen before. Menendez is charged with violating 18 U.S. Code 219. It's a conflict of interest statute that makes it a criminal offense for a, quote, public official. That's the important phrase here. Menendez is a senator, a public official of the United States in any of the three branches of government to be or to act as a foreign agent of a or to to act as an agent of a foreign principal who would be required to register under FARA. That's a real mouthful. But um, Menendez is in essence charged with conspiring to be an agent for the Egyptian government or for Egyptian officials, people working for the government, who would have had to register under FARA themselves to engage in the behavior that they were engaging in in the United States. FARA, we've talked about a lot in the past. It's the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Paul Manafort was charged under it. There's been a lot of discussion that Hunter Biden has been under investigation for violating it. And it just essentially is a registration requirement. If you're going to act for a foreign government, you have to let us know. But Menendez is not charged with the FARA violation per se. His charge is for a FARA-adjacent crime. And although the government has had some struggles in FARA cases, this charge is very specific. And for a sitting senator, if the government can prove the conduct that is alleged in the indictment, this is right on target for what the statute prohibits. Well, Jill, certainly bribery charges were disturbing uh, as they were. Um, But why are these new charges so much more significant? They are significant because Senator Menendez was the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. And what this did was show disloyalty to the U.S., some interest in protecting the interests of a foreign country. It abused his position on the Foreign Relations Committee, and it compromised him and made him subject to blackmail. These are very significant risks that he poses to the national security. And that's why it is so important that they be pursued. And again, we have to assume that he's innocent until proven guilty. But the accusations in the details that are laid out in the indictment, and I think we should post the indictment on our um, our show notes so that everyone can read the details for themselves and see that we're accurately describing this. But they do lay out some very specific conduct that risks our national security, particular things that he did. 
Yeah. And, you know, Jill, you raised the idea of blackmail. And I I think that's such an important point. Um, You may remember when Sally Yates went to the White House to explain why it was so problematic that Mike Flynn had been caught having this phone call with the Russian ambassador during a time before Donald Trump had taken office and then lying about it. It's because it made him susceptible to blackmail. And when a person is in a position of such power, the idea that they could be blackmailed. This is the kind of question you get asked all the time on background investigations. Uh, you know, we, I, I get in, interviewed all the time for people who are up for judgeships or uh, prosecutor jobs, and they always want to know whether there's anything out there that could make a person susceptible to blackmail because it is such a threat to national security. And so the idea that he is still in his role, I think, is one that endangers our national security. Kim, DOJ has struggled with some foreign agent cases in the recent past with acquittal in a number of cases, like Greg Craig comes to mind. How is this case different from those cases? Well, I think a couple of reasons. I think one, just the fact, and although the the first time that Senator Menendez went on trial for fraud, it was a completely separate set of facts and circumstances. But I do think the fact that the DOJ went after him, it ended up in a hung jury, and DOJ decided not to retry him, means that if they're trying him, of all people, again, that they have, they're confident in the facts that they have to move forward with this case of trial and the fact that uh, they have done a superseding indictment here makes it seem that it's he's very they're very confident in their case but the thing is as we mentioned in in under the statute that he's charged with elected officials are prohibited from ever acting as foreign agents. They just cannot do it. So they don't have to prove whether or not he registered or whether he was doing things that raised to the level of being an agent. That is already prohibited. But based on the indictment and reporting, he is accused of doing some really messed up stuff, like sharing information, non-public information with Egyptian officials about the staffing of the U.S. embassy. I mean, that's, if they can prove that, that that is wild. He also has uh, ghostwritten letters uh, to U.S. senators, to his own colleagues posing as uh, Egyptian officials trying to release a hold on $300 million in military aid. And that that military aid had been held up over humanitarian concerns. Um, He's also intervened on behalf of Egyptian officials to do things like uh, help someone get uh, a businessman get uh, uh, maintain a monopoly on selling halal meat in Egypt. And underlying this, it seems to be a strong underlying all of the charges. It seems that a lot of this was motivated by greed, by the (laughs) desire, by uh, gold bars. (laughs) <laughs> right. You know, it's a, by trying to get gold bars and other goodies for Senator Menendez and his wife. That is what they are alleged to have done. Jill is right. These are all allegations until it's proven guilty. This seems enormously serious. It's so funny when you mentioned Sally Hates Barb. Like that felt like so long ago in a way yeah. that, you know, yeah. to have someone those days. voicing yeah. those kinds of concerns just based on the fact that, look, we have things like this happening and think about the classified documents cases we've been talking about for months. These are real concerns. Concerns. And when intelligence falls into the wrong hands, it can really have very dire consequences, not just for the individuals involved, but for the nation at large. 
Yeah. So, Joyce, I have a question for you. Um, it seems like the allegations that serve as the basis for these new charges were already present when the first indictment was filed. There aren't really new facts here. Do you think that prosecutors were strategically holding back these charges for any reason? I mean, could that have been part of their plea negotiation or trying to get leverage over Menendez in any way? You know, so we don't know for certain, um, obviously, but I'm going to indulge in a little bit of wild speculation and then tell me what you think, because there's some possibilities. They're a little bit contradictory for what could have been going on. I mean, it's possible that, as you say, this is just straight up charge bargaining, right? This is a charge that sounds really terrible, especially for a senator. You were disloyal to your country. So maybe the government originally said, look, we won't charge you with this if you'll plead guilty. And that fell apart and the government superseded. But here's the contradictory possibility. Ironically, this charge, which sounds really bad to me, carries only a maximum two-year sentence. It's possible that the government is actually negotiating a plea with Menendez. They've superseded the indictment to include this charge, which carries a much lighter sentence than the other charges. Maybe they'll let him plead guilty to this, dismiss the other charges, and he gets a a better sentencing sort of a deal because he's pleaded guilty. Those are sort of opposite ends of the spectrum. And then finally, there's another possibility. You know, this charge, it's a conspiracy charge. The overt act, it's two meetings between Menendez, his his wife, and another defendant um, whose name is Wael Hanna. Possibly Hanna is now cooperating with the government, and he has put more flesh on the bones about these two conversations that let them bring this charge. A lot of these allegations were in the original indictment up front, but maybe they now have enough that they believe Mm -hmm. they have proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm -hmm. So they've superseded to add this charge, and they're also signaling hey, we've got a cooperator. It it could be one of those three. It could be none of them. What do y'all think? I think those are great explanations. I just want to question whether this is actually worse than having gold bars with the DNA of your briber on them and an envelope (laughs) with hundreds of thousands of dollars with the fingerprints of a different briber's driver on it is actually any less awful than this. They are both really serious and threatening to America that a U.S. senator might have done these things. So, and I I think your three explanations are definitely in the ballpark of probably being an explanation. And it's hard to know whether it was to get a better deal or a worse deal. (laughs) Um, You know, really. Well, Jill, let me, let me ask you about um, the strength of this case. Certainly, you know, as you just said, it looks like they've got uh, amazing evidence in this case. What about that old case that Kim mentioned, the prior bribery case? Um, Could any of the allegations about that incident come into evidence if this case were to go to trial? Well, they could. Um, There is a rule of evidence, 404B, that allows prior acts, prior crimes to be admitted into evidence in a current trial. And it's tricky. Um, I want to raise first a, a possibility, which is how impactful would it be on the jury to introduce evidence that led to a hung jury? And that's, you know, so it may not be the most compelling evidence, but it is used to show sort of that 
it wasn't an accident that he did it this time, that there is a pattern and practice of behavior. So it may have impact. It certainly isn't uh, something that a jury would ignore. Um, the prosecution is going to have to give notice, although the rule of evidence doesn't say how long that notice has to be before they attempt to use it, but they will have to give notice that they intend to use it and what they are using it for. So I think it could be admitted and the government may choose not to. Yeah, right. Don't don't muck up a strong case with weak evidence, I suppose, exactly. right? That's always a good that's always a good lesson. Well, Kim, let me just ask you where you see this going. Do you think Menendez will resign? A lot of senators, including Cory Booker from his own state of New Jersey, are calling on him to resign. Or do you think maybe he's holding that back as a bargaining chip with prosecutors? Um and if he were to resign, you know, who'd replace him? Yeah, well, I don't know who would replace them. I'm not close enough on the ground in New Jersey to know who the the top candidates might be. But I'm not sure. I mean, if I were a prosecutor, I wouldn't care if he resigned or not, at least not in so much in making this case. You would think that if he's convicted, if you have the goods and he would be convicted, uh, that that would take care of it himself. I suppose as long as he stays in office, he remains an ongoing risk. Um, for all the reasons that we discussed. But I thought he was going to resign once the dam seemed to break among Democrats in the Senate. It took a day or two after the indictment was announced, if you can remember, before people, including Senator Booker, um, it was a matter of hours. I remember I was reporting, I, I, I was the one that found out Elizabeth Warren said that he needed to step down. And I thought that by the end of that day, he was going to resign and he didn't. And he didn't resign the first time. And he actually was reelected. Maybe he thinks that he can beat it and he's just holding on. I don't know. I, I even am not in the senator's head, but if it were me, I would have stepped down if for no other reason, the sake of my spouse and my family and just to get through it. But he hasn't done it yet. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. And of course, his spouse here is a co-defendant. So yeah. maybe that complicates things. And Yikes. having beat it once before, maybe he is feels empowered or emboldened that he beat, beat charges once, he can do it again. I don't know. I think this is a case where prosecutors might consider his Senate seat a thing of value and might value it as uh, part of a plea deal. And that's because of that risk to the national security that he poses as long as he's there in, sen- in the sense there is yeah, value I, to the public interest of having him resign. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about it in that way. And I'm you, you bring that up and that's a, that's a, Really interesting point. I can see how that would be the case. And, you know, we don't know who might succeed him, but the process, I think, is that the governor of New Jersey, Governor Murphy, would um, choose a successor. I think Murphy is a Democrat and so would choose a successor, and then that person would be up for reelection in 2024, I think, is when the next election is for that seat. So, for the next uh, year and change, the um, governor yeah. of New Jersey could fill the seat. Yeah, and one, one, the reason I said I didn't know what is on the ground, different, different governors do different things, right? Sometimes a governor will pick someone in the same party but make them promise that they themselves won't run so that they won't mm-hmm. look like they're putting a thumb on the scale. Sometimes they'll try to put somebody in who may want to run for that seat. It, it can be a lot of uh, negotiating what's going on and and 
you know, New Jersey is a special place, as we've learned from some of the people that we've covered. So yeah. I'm not exactly sure how that's uh, going to play out, but perhaps. And, we shall and just see. just from a raw political point of view, if you know that a senator's time is coming to an end, when the governor appoints this early, it actually gives that person seniority. So yeah. better to go ahead and rip the Band-Aid off now and do it if you're thinking about the state's interests over time. I know that that's sort of a crass political analysis. It is, but, there but you it's, have it, it happens. It happens, yeah. So on to George Santos, bless his heart. Um, George Santos picked up a new case this past Tuesday, actually a superseding indictment in his existing case, and it could not happen have happened to a more worthy crook. Um, as calls mount for Senator Menendez, uh, whose indictment, remember, is only a couple of weeks old to resign, and those are calls that are coming from his own party. Santos continues to get an absolute pass from Republicans. He's still there looking a little bit lonely and out of place, but Republicans need his vote because of um, their very slender majority in the House. And I suppose when your leading candidate to be president is an insurrectionist, Santos doesn't look all that bad after all. Um, you know, we, uh, I, I think, could probably make George Santos jokes all day, and it might actually make for a fun show. But uh, I'll try to not make light of the situation and, and treat it seriously, because the new charges are serious. And as if the first indictment wasn't enough of a problem, this superseding indictment really adds to it. The original charges are pretty terrible, and there are six new ones added to the seven old ones. And what it involves is some stuff that you just go, this cannot be a member of Congress who's doing this. So, for example, he's charged with credit card fraud, which is something like repeatedly charging contributors' cards without any authorization. So you make a one-time donation, and then he just keeps charging and charging and charging. And I guess I have to mention that Trump did that in a different way. He had a thing that said, you agree to monthly charges which was the default rather than being something you had to accept. And he also is charged with using the election process overall as a way to defraud the public and the government and to add money to his campaign and to his personal bank account. He not only charged cards beyond the legal limit of anyone's ability, but he then stole family members' identities to change the name of who the donor was so that he could add it to his campaign report, and for him to then qualify for certain funding and advantages that he wouldn't have qualified for because he didn't raise enough money. So it's really an assault on our election process and the rules and regulations that govern how we um, do this. I mean, imagine stealing your family member's identity so that you could increase the amount that you think has been contributed. And um, I think it's really very serious stuff that he's now been charged with. You know, this guy is just such a schmuck. Um, it's just, <laughs> you listen to this stuff, and it really is tough to believe somebody could do this and then just stay in Congress, right? I mean, when, when these charges come to light, he's walking out of a meeting, and he looks indignantly at the press and says, don't you know I'm innocent until I'm proven guilty? 
well, yes, Mr. Santos, maybe you are, but you know, have you, have you no decency, sir, right? Or, or whatever the phrase is. Um, you know, Kim, I'm interested in what you see as being the most serious charges, the biggest problems for Santos. One of the issues here is he will spend time in prison if he's convicted on all of these charges, because among the new charges, aggravated identity theft carries a mandatory minimum two-year sentence. There is no possibility of probation attached if he's convicted on that charge. What do you think is most serious, and, and do you think that the charges will stick? Uh, I do think that that is very serious. I mean, it's one thing to be a smarmy politician who has a terrible relationship with the truth in any shape or form. It's another thing to engage in identity theft, not just for its own sake, but in a way, as you so adequately and Jill so adequately pointed out, is against our own election processes. He is defrauding the election process and donors uh, as well as family members. It's really, really horrific. And I do think that these charges will stick. First of all, again, he is a public official. When prosecutors bring charges against public officials, they take extra care to make sure the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted, especially in the current atmosphere. They don't bring these things willy-nilly. So that in itself makes me give special attention to this. The fact that the investigation into him continued, which is why we got this superseding indictment, uh, says a lot. And in terms of his defense that, oh, I paid somebody to look over my campaign finances. I don't know what they did. It was all them. That's not how prosecutions work. If an investigation found that a member of his staff was doing this unbeknownst to him, it would have been the member of the staff that would be facing these charges. He is the one that is on the hook for this. He is also is going to be a terrible witness on his own behalf because he is completely unreliable. I mean, I, who knows what, what do you guys think the craziest defense is going to be? That he actually is the only senator with the power to do this, that he has a special exemption, that he has special immunity, or he's already pardoned everyone Space involved. aliens. He's going to make up something that there's been some doctrine of some, he's just going to make stuff up because he's, I, he seems to, I'm not a, you know, psychological expert, but he seems to have a problem with, with lying uh, that seems rather pathological. So I think that this is pretty bad news for him. I do want to say, you know, in all fairness, that as with Senator Menendez, he is presumed innocent until proven guilty, but the lies that you are referencing have started from his campaign on his About everything, everything, his being Jewish, <laughs> sort of <laughs> about. And remember, he has a criminal case pending against him in Brazil. Yeah. So this is not his first rodeo to so say it. And I, I think that the the kinds of things he's charged with are so unbelievably ridiculous that. He cannot even take the stand. Think about the cross-examination you would have. <laughs> oh, my God. Delightful. He's the ideal. But he's stupid <laughs> enough that he probably could take the stand. But Absolutely. yes, and, and I just want to make a point that, yes, he is innocent, just like the senator, until proven guilty. But that is not, people keep, who keep saying that in response to whether he should resign or something, that's not the standard for exactly. a public elected <laughs> official. Yeah. You have a standard that's a little high. It's not a convicted 
crook, you know, not a felon. Like the standard should fall someplace short of that. So that doesn't mean that he shouldn't resign. You know, Al Franken resigned from the Senate when allegations came to light that he had engaged in inappropriate behavior, not, you know, not sexual assault. Well, I shouldn't say not sexual assault, not not rape, but it it was clearly sort of a, a crass kind of behavior. And he resigned. George Santos, you know, and others, right, who have been credibly accused of all kinds of misconduct. No longer is there any shame in public life. Remember, Richard Nixon resigned and Donald Trump brazened it out. Yeah. Well, Barb, I have the same question for you that you asked me about Senator Menendez, in in essence. Um, My question is, what do we know about how the superseding indictment happened? Santos's campaign treasurer, Nancy Marks, pled guilty to a fraud conspiracy charge recently. Do you think her case is related to the new charge? What's going on? I do. And, you know, like you, you said you were going to speculate uh, and you, you expressed some remorse in doing that. I expressed none. I'm going <laughs> to shamelessly speculate. Um, this is why I love to... you so much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think this plea it seems like no coincidence, right? Um, a week ago, um, th- uh, his former treasurer, Nancy Marks, enters a guilty plea and admits that they made false filings with the FEC to try to inflate uh, what appeared to be his campaign donations, because if you reach a certain threshold, then the Republican Party would provide funding and logistical support, but you had to meet that threshold. And so she uh, admitted, she pled guilty to participating in this inflation of um, his campaign donations uh, into a conspiracy. And then right afterwards, we get this superseding indictment. So it seems most likely to me that she's cooperating, that she sat down with prosecutors and she shared with them all of the things that uh, she could uh, and provided documents about how they were defrauding these donors. And so my guess is once they heard from her and believed they had evidence that they could prove this, these additional charges beyond a reasonable doubt, that's what triggered these, uh, the superseding indictment and these new charges. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but it sure seems coincidental. And, um, you know, so often it's so helpful to have someone on the inside like that, uh, even though they have some baggage, right? She She's admitting that she committed crimes too, crimes of uh, what what sometimes referred to as crimes of moral turpitude, committing fraud, making lies. But when you can support those and corroborate them with documentation, then usually that person isn't so much being relied upon to reveal facts, just to explain them because they can kind of connect the dots and serve as a narrator uh, to explain the documents that really provide the core of the evidence in the case. So it seems most likely to me that she signed on as cooperator and that the case against George Santos is very strong. You know, um, I I think that that's absolutely right, and that that just makes it more likely that he will suffer adverse consequences if this case goes to trial. But short of that, and and, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit, but do you all think that the Republicans will ever call for Santos to step down, and, and what would it take? Or do you think that they'll just let him stick around through trial until he's convicted? Well, they do need him, but there is a movement to expel him. Some of his colleagues on the Republican side have decided that he should be expelled from Congress, which is not just asking him to resign, but taking some official action to get rid of him. What do you think, Kim? You looked like you were going to jump in. I mean, the Republicans are having trouble even picking a speaker. I can't say what they might or might not do. I'm just going to stay out of that business. 
Well, it wouldn't be a week without some Supreme Court news. And this week, the U.S. Supreme Court hinted that it would let a South Carolina congressional district that had been deemed by a district court panel to be an unconstitutional racial gerrymander to stand. Yeah, that's right. We've been talking a lot about gerrymandering in recent months. But this case is a little different, so I want to talk about it carefully so our listeners really understand. I want to start with you, Joyce. You wrote a really uh, good Substack piece on this. If, for anyone who has not signed up to Joyce's Substack, you really need to do it. Tell us what's going on in the first congressional district in South Carolina, and how did it make it to the Supreme Court? So um, thank you for your kind words. Um, It's an interesting case. You know, it comes on the heels of last term's Alabama gerrymandering case, where the Alabama legislature is in the process of telling the Supreme Court, you know, we don't really think you meant what you said when you told us we couldn't engage in a racial gerrymander, so we're just not going to comply. That case, which is sort of the backdrop for this one, is working its way through the courts. It's very interesting how we get here in South Carolina, and it all happens because in 2019, and I apologize for putting my law professor hat on, but just indulge me just briefly here. In 2019, the Supreme Court decides a case called Rucho. They hold that while racial gerrymanders are still unconstitutional, they won't address partisan gerrymanders. They tell the states, go ahead and partisan gerrymander all you want. We won't invalidate your maps if you do that. So South Carolina takes advantage of that invitation. They draw a new map after the census, and when it gets challenged, they sure enough say, oh no, this isn't a racial gerrymander, it's a partisan one. They explicitly acknowledge that. Politics, not racial ger- not racial gerrymandering, is what South Carolina defends itself by saying. So you judge for yourself. Here's what happened. When they drew the new map, they put almost two-thirds of the black voters from District 1, that's Nancy Mace, a white Republican, they take two-thirds of her black voters, and they put them into Jim Clyburn's district. Jim Clyburn is a black Democrat. Um, He's in District 6. They also take in District 6 whole different groupings of Republican voters. They pull them out of Jim Clyburn's district and they shove them into Nancy Mace's district. But it's just about politics, South Carolina says. Their defense in essence is, you know, we may be awful, but we're lawful. Um, These maps get judged by the courts on a very different track than, you know, we're used to the normal case where there's one district judge and then a court of appeals and then the Supreme Court. And that's not how these cases work. These cases are assigned when the map is first challenged to a three-judge panel in the district court, two district judges, one court of appeals judge from that circuit. And after that panel rules, the appeal goes straight to the Supreme Court. So that's how this case got so quickly to the Supreme Court. And you can understand why they have to move fast. We are literally knocking on the door for the 2024 election. These maps have to be set before congressional candidates can qualify and the primary process can begin in South Carolina. So there is a lot of time pressure on this one. But in this case, the the original three-judge panel as Kim said, found that this was a racial gerrymander. Unfortunately, despite that ruling, um, there is just not any certainty about what map South Carolina will proceed under. In fact, the Republican uh, Party in this case has asked the Supreme Court to rule quickly and reinstate their map. 
um, that would be a real travesty. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really uh, incredible. And and we've talked about the Rucho case in the past, which said, according to the Supreme Court, not only is a partisan gerrymander not unconstitutional, but federal courts do not even have the power to hear challenges to partisan gerrymandering. Very different from a racial gerrymandering, which is unconstitutional. You just can't do it. But as I've said a couple times, I think also in our uh, live show, Often in the South, when you take a Venn diagram of a partisan gerrymander and a racial one, it's a circle. So, Jill, it seemed from the coverage of this case, for those who didn't listen to it, I did listen to it, but the consensus is that the oral arguments didn't go really well for the challengers who say that this is an unconstitutional gerrymander and should be struck down. Explain to us why people don't think they're going to win. It's a great question, Kim. And you know, warning, it's always hard to predict, or it's dangerous maybe to predict the outcome of a case based on how the justices react during oral argument. But in this case, it seemed pretty obvious that there was a 6-3 divide along party lines. And it's a shame to say that there are party lines in the Supreme Court. But you know who six I mean and what three I mean. That the challenges to the arguments made against this map were being poo-pooed and ignored, and that they were setting, on the, the conservative side, were setting rules that have never been rules. So they, for example, said, well, you who are challenging this never created an alternative map. Well, what's the rule that requires that there be drawn an alternative map that shows you could have achieved a different result? That just isn't something that exists. Um, the other thing that really bothered me was that the standard of proof that it would take to change this, because of how it's set up, normally the Supreme Court accepts the facts found by the lower court. And here, they really weren't going on the standard of clear error in the findings. They were just like, we're not going to pay attention to those findings. They had expert testimony. Well, we don't like those experts. And so we're not going to go with that. That to me was one of the most telling points in terms of why I think it's a clear case where the six are going to say, no, that map is just fine. And of course, it is difficult when the same group happens to overlap. If the Democrats are the black voters, and when they all get transferred into an adjacent Democratic district, to pack that as a clear winning district for Jim Clyburn, and he's a great representative, so good for that, but to then bring in all the white voters to make sure that Nancy Mace, who, you know, you can't go this week without mentioning her scarlet letter, letter A. <laughs> I'm sorry, but if you don't understand what I'm talking about, please just Google uh, uh. Scarlet Letter A and Representative Mace, um, who clearly never read. Wait, Scarlet can we just take Letter. a time out? And it, it, we, I think we need to digress and actually explain this, right? It so really she's, is. Good. She's wearing a, okay, a, sh yeah. a white shirt with okay. a red A. Yeah, I'll and explain she it. says, "I'm yeah. wearing the Scarlet Letter." And Jill, what what does she say is the reason? <laughs> It's, I can't repeat it. It's just too ridiculous. <laughs> she said, "She said, well, because I'm used to being trivialized as a woman. And like the Scarlet A, of course, anybody who graduated high school probably read the book and knows that it was because 
someone who was accused in, in our primitive times during uh, the pilgrims was had to wear a scarlet A if they were accused of adultery. And she was proudly wearing a very tight white T-shirt with a giant red A on it, uh, proudly proclaiming herself as having a scarlet A with no idea of what because you voted a against McCarthy. Like, like yes. what? 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 Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't. I, yeah, I don't understand. I think she yeah. read the cliff notes, not the book. <laughs> it was <laughs> missed, it missed the point. Was, you know, as sorry to divert who, with that, but I, I just no, you can't it's, mention it's be, no, that it's be she is the big winner <laughs> of this illegal gerrymander. And you know, it, it, the Supreme Court has said only states can review whether it's partisan or not. We, the federal's, can never do that. And only states that have something in the Constitution that says you can't partisan gerrymander um, are going to do it. And I guarantee all the southern states are going to change if they have that in their constitution so that they can go ahead and claim partisan gerrymander. As Kim said, it's not unexpected that when challenged, they said, oh, no, this isn't partisan. I mean, sorry, this isn't racial. This is partisan and partisan's okay. Well, partisan shouldn't be okay. Democrats have as much right to vote as Republicans and they ought to get fair representation. And right now, only one of the six districts has a uh, black majority or a minority majority, and that isn't fair. That isn't how it's supposed to be. It is not the same percentage as are represented in the state's population. Well, at, because I write for the Boston Globe as a representative Massachusetts you know, mass hole in this group, um, not only could I give Nancy Mace uh, a, a lesson about the Scarlet A, since that is the <laughs> origin of that, right. so is gerrymandering. Actually, we talked about this. Governor Gary of Massachusetts created the first gerrymandered district yeah. in Boston, and that's how it got the name. So perhaps she should wear a big red G, because that's how she gets to have <laughs> and keep her job. I don't know. That's just the right. thought. And, anyway. and, you know, going back to the gerrymander coming from your state, it, it was a crazy, odd shape that really went out of its way to snake around to get everybody into one district. Yep. And um, Like a salamander. Exactly. Like a salamander, exactly. And that was how we created that. And one of the things that makes me think that the Supreme Court is going to rule against it is that they said, well, there were no crazy shaped um, districts, which isn't what the test is. No. It just isn't. Uh, can we just say that this case was argued in the Supreme Court by Leah Auden, who's a lawyer for the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund? She is an extraordinary lawyer. So it's a rare lawyer who can try a case and argue it on appeal as capably as she can. Um, consistently, the Legal Defense Fund lawyers are just really good at this. But she was extraordinary. It's a rare day when a Black woman argues a case in front of the United States Supreme Court. So in that way, it was a real victory, I think for lawyers and for the rule of law, but she handled herself with enormous grace because the chief justice was so very negative about the case. And he, and he sort of made what I took as a very snarky point um, where he sort of said to her, you know, I'm not saying that it's impossible for you to win, but you would be asking us to break new ground here. And I have so much admiration for the fact that she just you know, didn't look at him and roll her eyes and say, 
Are you out of your mind, John Roberts? That's what you're here to do. You're here to break new ground if it's necessary to protect the rights of Americans. And here, where partisanship is being used as a marker for racism, you on the Supreme Court should not be afraid to say that out loud. So hats off to her for saying that in the nicest, politest way possible. Um, And I hope she wins her case. She deserves to. I hope that she does too. Yes, John Roberts and the other conservative justices were raising the bar, seeming so high, saying you can still, you can still clear it, but we're going right. to put it way up here for you to prove a, a partisan, uh, to prove a racial gerrymander. Our friend Mary McCord said to me this morning, "Well, gee, maybe they could just start doing that on college admissions forms too, right? You know, <laughs> now that you can't consider race, just put on a politics question as a marker. Certainly, <laughs> oh the Supreme Court would say that's okay." Mary is so smart. I thought that was great. Barb, I want to wrap up with you. Usually these types of challenges are limited to their facts, right? They don't really have wide precedential value because it's based on or supposed to be based on the record of that specific district. But as we mentioned after the Rucho decision, which said that partisan gerrymandering can't be challenged. And how do we think if if the challengers here lose in their claim that it was uh, a racial gerrymander, how, what happens next? I'm concerned that this basically creates a roadmap for those who want to disguise racial gerrymanders as partisan ones to create a factual, you know, a record in the, in the court below in any challenge, just to create enough doubt between the two to get past this very high bar that the conservatives on the Supreme Court seem to want to set. Am I am I hyperventilating here or do you share that concern? No, I, I share your concern. And I think this is a classic case of a Justice Roberts two-step. He, he, this is this is the way he goes. You know, he, he has one uh decision that kind of um takes one one little step in a direction, but it doesn't get all the way there. And then he he takes that second step that really cements the deal. And so what I mean by that is the first step was the Rucho case in 2019. And even in that case, you know, he said, you know, we're not talking about racial part, racial gerrymandering. No, no, no. That would be clearly unconstitutional. All we're saying today is that partisan gerrymandering is something that is a political question and we really can't decide it. But as Elena Kagan, my favorite justice, said at the time, remember she wrote, I went back and looked at it and she said that, um, gerrymanders, whether they're political or racial, whatever they are, gerrymanders dishonor our democracy. Left unchecked, as the court does today, gerrymanders like these may irreparably damage our system of government. And then she ended it with, you know, for for a Supreme Court justice, this is like screaming out loud, with respect but deep sadness was the way she said, I dissent. That was very powerful then. And I think she could see it coming. She could see where this was going to go. This was step one. And now along comes step two. And as you say, it's almost impossible to distinguish a partisan gerrymander from a racial gerrymander when you're talking about a district in the South where most racial minorities are going to vote for the Democratic Party. And so by calling it partisan, you can also uh, really strip the voting rights of people of a racial minority. And so, uh, you know, I find it only in this upside down world uh, of the Roberts court could protecting the the right to vote 
be considered breaking new ground, right? And so unless there is a smoking gun that says this is for race, then they can just call it a partisan gerrymander. And they say, all you have is circumstantial evidence, which in most cases is sufficient uh, that it's not going to be enough. So I think, Kim, um, you're not hyperventilating enough, frankly. Oh, dear. (laughs) I was afraid of that. Hyperventilate some more, honey. As much as we have enjoyed discussing these topics, we're now at the point of the show, which is our very favorite. It's the questions you send us, and we really appreciate them, so send more. In fact, if you have a question for next week, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or thread or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, You can keep an eye on our thread feeds throughout the week where we'll answer as many of the questions we've already gotten as we possibly can. And we have some really good questions this week. I'm going to start with you, Barb. A question from Susan. How does someone who does not qualify for a security clearance qualify for president of the United States? (laughs) What is done if Trump wins to protect our national security. Oh, Susan, this is such a good question. Um, because the president is elected by the people, there is no uh, security background clearance done for them. You know, when you hire somebody um, to work in the intelligence community or in law enforcement, there is an extensive background uh, investigation that gets done. And if a person fails, they don't get the job um, with all kinds of questions about dealings with foreign countries and assets overseas and um, susceptibility to blackmail, all kinds of things. But because the Constitution says that the only qualifications for being president are age 35, natural-born U.S. citizen, and continuous residence in the United States, it would be unconstitutional to require anything more of a president, including passing of a background check. And so it, it, we, if, if Donald Trump is elected president again, he is elected at our peril. Terrifying answer, Barb, but accurate. Well, Halloween's coming. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we have a related question from Ryan, and I'm going to pose it to you, Joyce. He asked, hypothetically, if Trump were convicted and sentenced to jail, spent time in federal court in New York and or Georgia, would he first serve the federal sentence and then transfer to state prison to serve the state sentence? How would that work? You know, this is a really interesting question, and it's one that comes up in in real life more than rarely because people will frequently be prosecuted in multiple jurisdictions. And the answer is, it depends on what the judges do, but usually the first jurisdiction that gets you and sentences you, you will serve your sentence there. And then if you have to be tried in another jurisdiction while you're in custody, you will be transferred to the custody of that jurisdiction, and there are complicated questions about where the time counts. In reality, when we're talking about Trump, though, 
I would expect, and and please don't throw rotten vegetables at me for saying this, but he will get appeal bonds to stay out on appeal after he's convicted because there will be novel, substantial questions in his cases. Um, I hope that I'm wrong. I suspect that I'm right. So he won't actually be serving a sentence, and he'll go through a series of these proceedings and then be sentenced, and the judges will structure where he goes first. Most defendants have a strong preference for serving federal time. Um, conditions in federal prison are certainly better they, than they are in Georgia's prisons, which are under investigation by DOJ. And typically, the sentences will run concurrent. That means that if he's in federal custody, that time will count for state convictions. But not always. It's up to the judge. The judges can require that time be served consecutively. So all that to say, I don't have a great concrete answer to your question. All I can do here play out some of the possibilities. And our last question is for you, Kim, from Beth. She asks, if, heaven forbid, Donald Trump becomes Speaker of the House, would he be exempt from standing trial in his multiple criminal cases and civil cases? That's a good question. Um, the answer is no. I mean, we, as we've discussed, there are members of Congress who are under indictment and can still face charges. There is no exemption. There is no DOJ policy against prosecuting sitting members of Congress. So that would really provide him no uh, cover in that sense, which is why I think that's one reason why he would never consider that job, because it won't get him what he wants most. I certainly agree. And although I promised in the beginning that this would be a Trump-free segment uh, or episode, <laughs> obviously the questions drove us to have some Trump in this episode. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Barb McQuaid, Kimberly Atkinstore, Joyce Vance, and me, Jill Wine-Banks. And remember, you can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet or thread them to us for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. Please support this week's sponsors, Lomi, Aura, HelloFresh, and OneSkin. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they make this show possible. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag sistersinlaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and please give us a five-star review so that others can find us. See you next week with another episode, hashtag sistersinlaw. law